Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. Each week I'll be talking to some incredible guests and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. From incredible life stories to a variety of important subjects, all to help you with your quest to change your relationship with alcohol. All of my guests are at different points in their journeys and each of them have powerful and uplifting stories and information to share. I hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to subscribe and of course, leave a review. My guest today and one for the world is Jim Sonefeld. He had always dreamt of being a professional football player, but when that didn't work out, he turned to his passion of writing music and drumming. Within a couple of years, he ended up being part of the amazing 90s band Hootie and the Blowfish, travelling all over the world and receiving several awards. But after years of success, his drinking and drugs spiralled out of control until he seeked solace in the 12-step programme and has been sober ever since. This is a great interview with a great guy and I hope you enjoy it. And don't forget, I'm partnering up with Coach Helen Bennett, who specialises in helping people to stop losing control with food. And she's offered my listeners a fabulous 10% off of all of her courses, classes and private coaching programmes. Use the discount code SOBERDAVE at the checkout. She also has a free Food Freedom Masterclass you can join. All the links are on her bio and her website, helenbennett.co. Okay, I hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to leave a review and subscribe. So, hello, Jim. Welcome to my podcast, One for the Road. It's your morning, I believe, because you're over in the States, right? I'm in the state of South Carolina. The sun is shining. It's hot as Hades, as it always is in August. I'm not complaining. We have air conditioning. Wonderful. And how have you been lately? I am not complaining. We have a big family, kids that are growing and just about out the door. And my wife, Laura, and I are getting to enjoy a little bit of the freedoms of empty nesting. I've got creativity still coming from my heart and I have places to be creative, which I'm truly blessed for. Fantastic. Well, we're going to get into that a little bit later. But as people know, my lovely listeners, they love a life story. And you've got quite one to tell, actually. So let's wind it all the way back, Jim, to the beginning when you was a wee little lad walking about on this earth. What was that like for you? Oh, I was a wee little lad. I was a big little baby, though. My mom had five of us in uh, 60, 62, 64, 67, and 71. So we had a big family that was growing up in the middle of America in a... uh, suburb of Chicago, Illinois. So we're out sort of in the cornfields in a smaller community. And uh, that's where we landed after a bunch of moves when I was younger. Uh, We didn't really settle down until I got to be about nine or 10 years old. And uh, I was the middle of the five. And uh, we were loved. We were sheltered. We were fed. We didn't have a lot, but I never went hungry. And we were taught how to love, and and we were in a church that I wasn't too excited about from a very young age. So I had some judgment over that, and some some pushback. And uh, 
but it was it was a nice upbringing there. We we had sports around us. I was obsessed. I had a few things sort of tugging for my attention in my heart and head as a kid, and it was probably sports because I would chase anything, any ball, or give me a bat, and I would learn to hit a ball. And so we had a lot: basketball, baseball, American football, soccer, tennis. And uh, so I did a lot of that, as did my siblings. And uh, I also had music. We had music in our home, no instruments, but uh, a mom who had really cool taste uh, for a lady that was born in, you know, 1939. She was on the rock and roll uh, hippie side of uh, Elvis. And my dad probably leaned back towards more of the traditional uh, older new rock and roll. My mom brought in R&B and Motown and British rock and just a cool variety of of music that really lit me up. So I also was born a drummer. <laughs> I uh I've learned some other instruments by teaching, but I truly was the kid who could not sit still without tapping his fingertips or his feet or clanking my teeth to try and be less noisy. And uh, I, I did end up annoying a fair amount of teachers and authority figures with my inability to stop that rhythm in my head that just was there permanently. I was hearing drum beats. I was hearing picking the drums out of the music I was listening to. And I guess finally, by about seventh grade, they decided uh, that uh, drum lessons would be cheaper than uh, therapy for this little Jimmy who couldn't stop tapping and uh, manifesting this rhythm that was in his head. And so we got me drum lessons. So when I was 13, I started to organize that nonstop rhythm in my head onto a drum kit. And that was a game changer for me. Uh, I got to start dreaming and seeing, you know, ooh, a drummer could be a drummer in a band. And I could be like Keith Moon, hopefully not fully like Keith Moon, <laughs> or John Bottom, hopefully not like John Donald Bottom fully, but, you know, the good drummers. And so that was great. So I had sports, I had music going and 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 starting to pay attention to the girls. But when I was 14, I, I had sort of a moment that altered my course a little bit. I had uh, found myself about to start our, you know, grade nine, which is, you know, 14 years old. And uh, I was moving from a little Christian school where I'd had the same 25 classmates from the beginning to a school that had 2000 kids, 500 my own age. And I was excited to leave my Christian teaching behind and not have to deal with nuns and and priests and uh, go into a a more progressive and I guess liberal setting where there was kids you could smoke cigarettes in the lounge at school. It was 1979, you know. And in that summer before entering the school, I found myself around 14 year old kids who were using drugs and alcohol one night. And, you know, I'd been told by my parents, by the police, because I had older brothers, the police were always visiting, uh, by the priests at my school that it was illegal, uh, you know, alcohol, drugs, it was dangerous, and you really had to be careful. But as soon as I saw kids my age using it, I went right for it. There was nothing that was going to stop me from uh, wanting the thrill of what they were doing. It, it, it appeared like they were having more fun. I liked, I was a little deviant. I was a thrill seeker. So the fact it was illegal and unlawful was part of the allure. Uh, but also there were, there were girls and boys there. And 
I went right for it. So I started to uh, smoke a little bit and, and drink a little bit. And I love the feeling. I mean, I, there's no doubt that when you put a chemical in your body, it changes your mind. And mine was. And I thought, I love this, right? A little woozy, a little dizzy, maybe felt a little taller and stronger and funnier. And the girls looked instantly a little cuter. And the end of that first night, I ended up uh, on my knees on the side yard, vomiting in the bushes, hiding it from my parents who would have thought that was a terrible thing. And um, I, instead of, you know, thinking, wow, be careful, Jim, this is a dangerous thing. I did the opposite. And maybe that's sort of the, the uh, something in me that's uh, unique, or we call it sometimes an ism. I instead looked at it like a competitive sport and said, Man, I, I failed that first time. You know, the score at the end of night one was alcohol one and Jim nil. I'll I'll do better next week when I have this opportunity again. And so that's how I went about uh, my drinking and drugging uh, from that point. I was a weekend warrior through high school. You know, I partied with kids. I balanced. I had by that time become uh, singularly obsessed with uh, what we call soccer. So I was very sports minded and and wanted to keep in shape and loved it. Uh, but I balanced that with the partying and uh, we'll, we were into all sorts of things, whatever anybody could come up with out there in the, in the uh, farmlands. And sometimes it was acid or cocaine or uh, booze or beer, weed. We were uh, willing to attempt anything, pills. And this was obviously predating a lot of the more dangerous things we see in pills these days. So we didn't think we were in any harm uh, at all. I got to go to the university to play uh, soccer, my dream. I moved from uh, at age 18 from Chicago all the way to Columbia, South Carolina, where I was going to uh, walk on, try out for the uh, uh, varsity team. I was the only player the coach took in 1983, and I was thrilled. I thought I was stepping into the biggest dream. I'd get four years of soccer, maybe even opportunity to go to the next level and the roller coaster that I had been on, which was a weekend warrior with partying and balancing grades and relationships and approval of my parents and authority figures, uh, got a little rockier in college. You know, it took me six years, for instance, to get through a four-year degree. So I was obviously not exactly focused. Soccer was my main major, and I books were a sideline, and they were well behind the partying and the girls, too. Uh, but that roller coaster seeking highs, which I was achieving uh, on the field and in my partying, you know, always meant that there was a bigger crash at the bottom to come down. And so I started to suffer more from some uh, uncomfortable relationships and consequences in my decision making. And uh, at the end, there was me, you know, sitting there with a degree in my hand, a soccer dream that had ended. I was left with just a good mullet and short shorts <laughs> and wasn't sure where to turn. Yeah. Do you know what, though, Jim, what you said there? I think, when were you born? What year were you born? I'm a 64. So Yeah. So you were born 1964 and your mum was born 1939, right? Yeah. Same here. Uh, exactly the same. So when you were saying it and you were saying about your mum as well, like it was really ringing true with me, all of these things. I think there's too many similarities. And I started <laughs> drinking when I was 14 as well. And I threw up in my stereo lid. I had a record player 
and uh, it had one of those fold down lids. And I remember ripping off the lid and throwing up in it. And when I woke <laughs> up in the morning, it was by my bed. Um, and I thought, oh, no, I've messed up my record player, right? Not, oh, God, I was so ill last night. And the weird thing is, if it was a food and we got food poisoning, we probably wouldn't eat it again for a long time, if ever at all. But because it's this drug, I think we just remembered the high that it gave us, which took us back again. Well, it is definitely something I was seeking, and I didn't know anything that there might be a, a void in me that I was trying to fill in or that uh, there could be a connection between uh, my seeking an escape through drugs and alcohol and my emotional uh, disabilities. I didn't yeah. see the connection when we're young, especially, right? We look at the – it's evidence-based. There's throw up in my turntable. That's bad, yeah. and that's the worst thing, so I'm going to not think about – how I got to that point. I'm just going to think about how I can get a new turntable. Yeah. Or chat up the next girl or be with my mates and make them laugh. We remember the good bits, right? But then it starts to get out of control, doesn't it? Like, so at 14, it was just randomly going up the shops and asking the adults to buy some beer out the off license. But then you start developing a relationship with it, don't you? Right. Uh, when it becomes what society or uh, says is legal, Mm. especially just, let's say, uh, you know, booze or beer or wine, you know, when that becomes legal in, in my life, I, I, I then sort of think to myself, um, wow, this is okay. This is, and what is, I mean, it's the one glue that is so accepted in our societies where yeah, alcohol, it's a, it's a natural life. It's what we do. It is like breathing uh, to many people. And so I thought now that I'm in that legal status, I'm okay. And I think I probably measure, started measuring myself as the consequences came with uh, by moving the lines of right and wrong or good and bad or success and failure. If, if I wasn't in the back of a cop car and my friend was, I thought I was okay. Even if we were, you know, partying and drunk and belligerent, if I didn't get caught, then I was okay. So I always found people to hang around uh, that had bigger consequences and that, you know, allowed me to feel like I was okay. And if I did something more drastically wrong, I would justify it with rationalization. I'll move the line, move that, you know, well, it's not that bad, uh, or I won't do that again. It was a, a you know, a one-off. And so I was constantly doing this rationalization and justification uh, during that period of my life. I was in my 20s and felt, oh, I have a, a college degree. And I would uh, shortly, uh, or right before getting that degree, join and meet my bandmates uh, who were in college at the same time in the same predicament with a degree, but no desire to sit at a desk. Yeah. Um, and we wanted to write songs. So that enters... Uh, my guys, Hootie and the Blowfish. Wow, we're talking to about this. So how did that all start? Well, I the music was growing in my heart through my teens, and I'd learned to play a little guitar and piano and was singing a bit. So I knew I wanted to write songs. And uh, after my long six years in college, the timing ended up being perfect. It was quite serendipitous that uh, Darius Rucker and Mark Bryan and Dean Felber who already had this little band, Hootie and the Blowfish, uh, were graduating and uh, their drummer was leaving and uh, they wanted to concentrate on writing music. And that was where my focus was. So uh, it just was great timing. I, I knew Mark 
from a audio production class at the university. And he said they were going to be auditioning drummers and they want to uh, become original artists. And I just like had to be there. So I had written a few songs at the time and sat down with an audition for them and um, probably August of 89. And it went great. We we were still playing a lot of cover material and uh, knew that people like to dance and have a good time and sing along. But we were also writing our own music immediately. And I brought in a song that was one of the first good songs I ever wrote. And it ended up being an important song for the band called Hold My Hand. And it was, uh, you know, my sort of kid in his mid-20s plea to the world to get along and stop uh, oppressing others and all everybody have peace and let's help each other. Meanwhile, I didn't know I was growing in my illness uh, and my association with alcohol at the same time, but I just uh, brought that song in. They loved it. We hit it off and we started doing what they call paying your dues. Uh, we bought a little Ford van and we hit the highway. We had day jobs at the same time. So we were living right along the poverty line, but life was quite simple. Life was quite good. We didn't have uh, a, a sort of a lot of responsibilities other than to try and get better at our craft and be willing to take any gig we we could for the opportunity to get seen by a record label. And so we did. We did that in 89, 90, 91, 92, 93. We're putting out original music independently. And I'm loving every minute of uh, the geographic changes I would get. One night in Raleigh, North Carolina, if I have a consequence, if I overdo it, it doesn't matter because we're on to Washington, D.C. the next night. And if I have a bad scene there, well, we're on to uh, somewhere in Virginia the next night. And I never considered it at the time, but I did find that quite convenient to sort of feel like I was escaping the the traumas that I was part of. Mm. And uh, so we kept traveling and we, we traveled for about five solid years uh, working our butts off. And, and starting to party a little bit more. I've just finished watching a series over here called Daisy Jones and the Six. Have you heard of it? I have. And isn't that uh, lightly or directly based on another yeah, band? A, a band. And, and there was a guy in there that um, got in trouble with alcohol and drugs. And you saying it like that, it just brings it back to that, where they were climbing their way up. They were doing a lot of traveling. And, you know, it's a tough business, isn't it? We enjoyed it. And it's meant for young people. So we were right in there, you know, 20, mid-20s yeah. and of energy and desires. And so it didn't ever seem rough. Honestly, we, we, money was never the point for us. Making music, meeting girls, and, uh, you know, if we got paid in beer and gas money, that was enough. So it never felt tough. That was the, why we kept going, even uh, when we weren't getting the attention. When you're at that age as well, it does, it, you know, when I was in my 20s, it's almost that's what you do. We didn't know the consequences of it. You know, I used to get in at five in the morning from a club and go to work at seven. And by by nine, my hangover was over and I was thinking about the next night out. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? But so at that point in your life where you was touring around, what was the kind of drinking you were doing? Just after a gig or before a gig? Yeah, it was uh, functional. You know, I really wasn't uh, uh, so obsessed in my 20s that uh, I was ever thinking about drinking in the morning. Of course, drinking in the day wouldn't have been a problem, except we worked at night, especially when we started getting paid a little more for our appearances and our concerts. Uh, you know, I, I 
couldn't ever afford. It would be stupid to drink in the day when you had to be on stage at uh, nine or 10 uh, or even 11 o'clock at night. And in the clubs, it is late. You might, your gig might be midnight to 2 a.m. And that wouldn't have been uh, unusual. Uh, So day drinking wasn't really ever going to be a part of mine. And I also knew I can drink on my job. And that's maybe the uh, the blessing and the the curse of uh, the entertainment or the music business is that what's what's wrong with seeing the musicians up there getting uh, getting drunk on stage? That's sort of part of the glory and the circus of it. And uh, so that became very regular. And I, I started uh, probably when we were off the road. We might play three nights on a weekend, but when we came home, I was also liking to you know, hit the clubs and hit the bars. And I, for a while, I, I didn't notice it. And maybe no one did. I wasn't really taking nights off. I, I, I there would n- never a reason to stay home and not drink. Mm. And no one was, no one was uh, calling me out on it. No one was necessarily intervening and saying, I'm worried about you uh, because all the youthful energy makes up for it. If you can get to work at 7 a.m. after staying up all night, like you said, and your hangover's done by nine, who cares? So we did a lot of that and we were simple guys. It was mostly just, uh, you know, we loved our beers and I started getting into booze. I could, whatever I could mix up in vodka or, or rum or, uh, whatever would be good. We did a lot of shots. Jägermeister seemed to be the rage back then. So we were always, um, doing a lot of shots on stage and people were bringing us free booze. It was a mar- It was like a, a little race. When you hit the stage, you start drinking. Two or three hours later, you've got a great buzz. You've, you've sweated a lot of it out, and you're going to get paid, and you're going to get to meet some girls, and you feel accomplished, and you're midway into a, a good drunken night. And many people at that point would have just turned it off and said good night. But I started to uh, be fascinated by what happens after the show, which might include three to four more hours of partying and carrying on. And that's really where the trouble is. It's not on stage. You know, I've interviewed several musicians on this podcast. And believe me, whether it's a UK thing, but um, they drank before a gig quite heavily. Wow. Uh, and one guy was on stage and was singing and the mic was 10 foot away. And his mate had to come and drag him to the mic, right? But um, there's also Cher Adelican, who who's the bass guitarist of the Gorillas, you know, the band of Gorillas. And he stopped drinking and he said the hardest part was after a gig because everyone's partying and he's sitting in his hotel room and he's full of adrenaline and the high from the gig. And it's almost, what do I do now? So he really struggled with that after show kind of thing where he went back with his tail between his legs because he was the non-drinker um, and struggled with that. So there's a lot of elements to it. But at what point did you really get the break then? Well, we got... uh a little lucky, but let me define luck the way it was posted on the gymnasium in my school growing up. It said luck is where preparation meets opportunity. Mm. Fair enough. It's a, a sort of two elements that are important there. And after working five years, we got signed to Atlantic Records, the home of, you know, Aretha Franklin, Zeppelin, all these big uh, Ray Charles. We we're just on cloud nine. We record a record. Um, we're still a baby band for all intents and purposes, and they put it out. And it's not getting much traction after the first few months, except there are some radio stations playing the song I had written five years previous, Hold My Hand. And this late night uh, uh, 
a comedian talk show host who was the biggest at the time, David Letterman. Here's hold my hand on his way home from work one night and calls his booker and says, get me the guys on my show that will sing hold my hand. We are thrilled. This is a big break. And we go up there uh, to play the show and we're nervous Rex, we're on television. We don't know if this might be the last time we ever get to be on TV. Um, we, we have some self-belief, but we also know that it's a cruel business and this could be a big break or it might just be a shot in the dark. And we go on there and in three and a half minutes and uh, with the help of David Letterman sort of falling in love with the band name and our, and our music, uh, in three and a half minutes, our trajectory changes forever. We're in front of Six and a half million fans who like the song, who start calling the radio stations in their different cities across America, and suddenly Hold My Hand is zipping up the rock charts. And that was the change. That was the break. That was the moment where suddenly people could see us instead of trudging around and playing shows, you know, uh, 600 people in a club, one night at a time, we're in front of six million viewers. And they like it. Yeah. So it was uh, well-received. And that just started a, a a faster upward trajectory. Suddenly, we're getting more invitations. Suddenly, the album is charting. The album debuted at 127 on the top 200, and it had sort of uh, sat around 160 on the charts several months later until Letterman. And then so it starts creeping into the top 100, the top 75. By the time... The next May comes, and we're sitting in London, actually, uh, doing a gig there, trying to get our British fan base together. Our album goes number one in the States for the first time. Wow. And we, again, lift up a shot of Jägermeister to toast the moment and hit the stage. And, uh, gosh, I can't remember where we uh, – might have been Shepherd's Bush or somewhere that night. Hammersmith, uh, Apollo. Yeah, it wasn't a big place, but we were happy to be growing, you know, still there. We were a new band. And so, yeah, that was it. And we came home that summer to play an amphitheater tour, 20,000 people a night sold out. We had to make a big change. And, you know, that uh, sort of accepting and trying to figure out how to do those big places. And we worked hard. We partied hard, but it was still pretty basic. We were we were simple guys. Uh, nobody hard drugs hadn't entered the picture at all and we rode for about five years where we put out our biggest first album crack review we followed it up with fairweather johnson which went number one a few years later we followed that up with uh, a third album which went number one in the late 90s and eventually as happens in the industry uh, the, the the fans some of them move on to the next new band with a cooler sound and tighter jeans and and cooler hair and and um, I'm facing the reality and we all sort of are but in my personal way I don't know what to do with the fact that we have seen our best days that's in the rear view we're now 2001 uh, life is getting a little dark 9/11 has happened I'm starting to use cocaine regularly to help my drinking which is getting worse and. I have a few friends in our crew that I realize are about to give me an intervention. And this is an important point for me because I I understand they're whispering that they're worried about someone in the organization. I didn't know who they were talking about and they didn't know I was listening. This person has been prone to some temper flare ups. Uh, They were worried about who he was hanging out with well after the shows and these weird places. 
And I, I thought honestly that I could burst in and say, let me help with this person. They sound like they're sick. And as they told my name to each other, they said, we're worried about Sony, about Jim. I about my just chin dropped. I was so heartbroken that they were all worried about me. And 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 a normal person probably at that point would take that sign and that evidence and say, you got me. I, I'm turning myself in. I'm, I'm out of control. I need some help. And I didn't. I went the other way and committed to hiding it better, to not upsetting people, to isolating in hotel rooms, to not letting him know how long I had been drinking during a period or how much I'd been drinking. And it was lies, secrets, and and um, more darkness. You adapted. Uh, you know, I did that, Jim. I, I you know, was, uh, a few people down the pub started mentioning, Dave, you're always drunk, mate, and you're looking terrible and whatnot. So I, I used to just mi- minimalize my drinking in the pub and then go home and they'd think, oh, well, he's curbed his drinking, but they didn't know I'd go home to drink a hell of a lot more. Like, you know what I mean? You adapt yeah. to the situation, don't you? We're, we're skilled in that way. Uh, you know, I'm not, uh, none of us that uh, get in trouble with the drinking are, are, are stupid or dumb. We're, we're, I think it's more of an illness where you, you adapt to your situation like any creature would. And, you know, you can camouflage yourself in. And if the camouflage isn't working anymore, you find a new environment and, uh, you get around it. So yeah, the ice, I started isolating and I did that for four more years and it all got worse and the lies and the cheating and the secrets started really gathering and and wearing heavy on me. It was becoming so difficult and frustrating to carry on. I had to get my drink. I spent most of my waking hours obsessing about where I could get the drink and the drugs to help me stay up. And then when I could get them in me, the first few were so glorious, but I couldn't control the ending could never control whether it was going to be a big consequence, a blow up, bloody knuckles, a blackout. And uh, I kept purging through. I didn't know about solutions. I didn't know about where I could go. And I was mostly in denial because as an old wise king once said, uh, he says, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than him. And I thought, because I'm an in Hootie the Blowfish, I'm successful. I'd started a family. I have a home with a couple of nice cars out front that I'd paid for, that I'd, I was bulletproof, that I didn't need help. I didn't need your help to tell me how to live my life. And I was that wise man who was in trouble. It's interesting how you describe it. Um, you didn't know how you were going to go. I, I called that Russian roulette because I was the same, Jim. Like I could be in a really upbeat, happy mood and make everyone laugh, but I could just turn. And and I was so kind of poisoned, you know what I mean? It was like because I was drinking daily, I was just topping up all the time. So I never really, my nervous system was inflamed continuously. Um, And depending on what had happened in the day or how I was feeling that night, whether I was tired or or whatnot. I just didn't know where I was going to turn. And that's horrible, isn't it, for people around you as well? Oh, my gosh, that quick turn in personality change. Uh, and and we as the drinkers, I didn't always know what it was that was upsetting me. I would turn on a dime. And in, in my book that I released last year, was a story about being at this show and in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. And I've got some friends from my old soccer days there and their kids and I'm having the best time. And our manager's trying to get us out because we need to 
drive the tour bus up to Chicago for a very early morning flight and something just switches in me and it goes dark. And suddenly I'm uh, at his throat yelling at him and telling him to F off. And I'm quickly after that, punching a hole through a wall in the tour bus and blood is flowing. And I don't know, I don't know what made me snap. And, and that was part of the frustration. We say we get maybe sick and tired of being sick and tired, becoming sick and tired of it, but I didn't yet have a solution. I didn't know quite where to turn. I was just wanting my own self-will to be enough. You know, we, 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 we have so many gifts. We can work hard. We can strive and we can have our intelligence. But, you know, when it's the drink, it's a little more complicated, right? Mm, it is. It is. I can really relate to that. So where was your point that you thought that's it? I had it about four times a week in 2003 and 2004. I was constantly convincing myself that was that's it. This is it. And I would sometimes promise it to other people and sometimes to myself. But uh, the truth was, once that next evening rolled around, I, I couldn't stay away from it. I knew I was going to go after it. And I had uh, had some consequences. I had Our second child came along also, and that put a burden on our family and my traveling schedule. And so I was probably ready to make a move and unsure. I was just fighting my way till the end. And I didn't know which way it would turn, really. I, I luckily never had to consider, you know, suicide, which is the way some and many people end up in this period of frustration and mm. wet brainness and bad decision making. They, they don't see an answer. And um, uh, for those people, there there's help, too. There, there certainly is. But I, that wasn't going to be a route for me. I was going to go down fighting and swinging. And one morning I had a curious and it was my last sort of, I guess, intervention. And, and it was uh, from someone who you wouldn't really want to be getting intervened by if you're a 40-year-old head of your household. And it was my four-year-old daughter at the time. And she didn't mean it to be an intervention. But I had, uh, again, found myself detached from my family. I had built a little music studio behind our house, detached, literally. Um, and I would use that to go out. Uh, after the kids had gone to bed and my wife was going to bed, I'd say, I'm going to write a new song. You know, of course, I conveniently had all my my booze out there that I was really more interested in. And I hadn't made it back after the Saturday night, late night session of staying up, writing some crappy song and uh, being sad and drunk and alone. And my daughter came out to the studio about 1030 in the morning on the Sunday and she hopped on my chest. I was passed out wearing the same clothes I'd, you know, worn the night before, reading her, you know, her goodnight story. And I probably smelled horribly, uh, uh, like either smoke or booze or both. And she just hopped up on my chest and she she said something she had said, I'm sure, many times before. And I'd always been able to answer it with some BS. She said, Dad, what are you doing? Dad what are you doing out here? Or why are you sleeping here in the family's inside? She meant it very purely as a four-year-old would naively. Why are you in the house with the family watching cartoons and having breakfast and laughing and having joy? Why are you out here separate? And I couldn't answer. I would always answer. I always had an answer. And on this day, something was sort of clamping my mouth up and she got frustrated and ran off. And I was left with, well, me and that heavy, growing feeling that maybe I didn't know what I was doing. I was still about to say that, Jim. That was probably the moment you thought, what am I doing out here? 
in the same oh, clothes on the floor at half ten. On, you know, that that's what happens sometimes. And it's it very crushing. powerful. Children are so honest, aren't they? Brutally honest. Yeah, I took that. It was more difficult than any of the interventions I'd had from my bandmates or my, my first wife or friends because you knew it was honest. You yeah. knew she didn't have anything at stake except for uh, her heart. And I sat there and I just said, well, I, I don't know what I'm doing to myself, to, to maybe some God. I don't know. I was just in a bad state and I, I made a quick decision and I admitted to myself, I don't know what I'm doing. And I think I have to do the thing that nobody wants to do mm. naturally, which is ask somebody else for help. And so I sort of drug myself down the stairs, you know, ironically past a wall of hootie gold records and accolades and achievements and Grammy awards. And I tell you, I looked at those things and they were, they were power. They were meaningless. They mm. didn't hold any power. I was a sick person that needed help and nothing I had ever done in hooting the blowfish was going to help me at this point. I needed what became sort of a, a spiritual surrender to say, God, I, I need, I need some help. And I called, you know, the one guy that <laughs> I knew who I used to party with and had given me his phone number a few times. He was, did what some of the 12 steppers do as a result of their, you know, recovery, which is to bring the message to others. And he had told me a few times, call me if you ever want to make a change, wink, wink, call me if you ever want to get your life together, wink, wink. He knew I was struggling and suffering. He had done it himself and he had found help. So I called him that day. He, of course, did what is sort of the responsibility of, uh, of those 12 steppers, which is to, you know, bring me a place that I can hear a message. And I went to this meeting that night. I tell you, I didn't know what to, to expect and I wasn't sure they'd really have anything for me. But these people that were practicing uh, these 12 steps and the power of transparency, which I had never had in my life. They were telling on themselves. They were talking about their missteps, their failures, their limitations, their weaknesses, openly and honestly, and not just to brag about them or make it seem like some glorious drunk log, but they were also telling me they have a solution. And that was where my ears got perked up. And I said, what? You, you People are all telling me you drink like me or you drank like me and you found some uh, set of uh, principles or steps that have led you out of that uh, uh, sort of crappy place. And I thought, I think I want this thing. I, I think, I think I see all of you uh, as sort of myself, but a, a better healed version. And uh, they said, you know, keep coming back. <laughs> and I was of course drunk there trying to hide that too, because I couldn't go to a, a meeting with other people and not be a little buzzed. I drank that day before going to the, to the meeting and they seemed so sincere and I trusted it. And so when they said, keep coming back, I did. I found a meeting the next day. I didn't drink before I went to that one. And um, I started hearing what I needed to hear, which was what my problem might be, uh, what the solution could be and a step path between them, you know, and I, I, I fell in love with that. Amazing. Amazing. And did you um, find yourself a sponsor at that meeting? I was listening for several meetings. I did love what I hear. I was told, get a sponsor, uh, try and hang out with some new people, stick to the winners, all the great sayings, uh, live and let live that, that they're using in there. But as much as I wanted it, I, I was very sick. And 
Uh, I didn't know the depth of not just my bad drinking, but my bad thinking. And they, they told me to move from some old ideas to some new, uh, better ideas. You need someone, a confidant, a sponsor. Uh, you need a group around you, which I was willing to sit in every day, but, uh, something about me, there was a fear. There was a fear and some pride that said, well, I like these meetings. I like hanging out with these people, but I'm not sure about getting deeply honest with somebody. That was a, I wasn't sure about that. And so it took me a while. I, I went to, you know, they recommended 90 meetings in 90 days. I said, I'll go for that. And about 74 days in and 74 meetings under my belt, I started thinking, maybe I can, maybe I can dabble back in a little bit and, and try some, uh, some research about my addiction. And I did. I went out and tried some and I didn't like how that felt. I it felt a little guilty. Like, I don't think that was in the spirit of recovery. And I called up my buddy and he said, you should just start over and get a damn sponsor this time, you know? And I, and I did, I, I made a commitment to try and be as honest as I could. And that starts with asking another guy to to sponsor me and, and walk me through the journey that he had already experienced. That's was the, the main thing you want to get somewhere. You, you talk to somebody who's been there. I love that Jim, because for me, I was, I've always been quite an open person and, and talk about things, but I was very closed because of my addiction. So, you know, all the secrets and the lies turned me into someone that wouldn't talk about it with anyone. And I think I realized that for me to succeed in my sobriety, I needed to share my story. And I remember I was asked to do a talk in a pub nine weeks after stopping drinking. Now, I've been drinking for 40 years. Like you, Well, no, you've been less, have you? Because you gave up in 2004, right? 40 years. And I remember going there and I was the last one on. There were seven people speaking about different life-changing things in their life, right? And where I was sitting was opposite the bar where they had my favorite drink, Peroni. And I was literally looking at it thinking, what am I doing? And (laughs) I got up on this stage. I was shaking like a leaf. And I had an iPad because I couldn't remember anything what I was going to say. But at the end of it, Jim, the reaction from the people that were in the audience with a glass of wine, with a pint of beer, was astonishing. And the amount of people that after that come up to me privately and said, that's really inspired me to do something about my own drinking. And then I realized that that kind of connection, sharing your story is so important to, to put out there. And that really gave me a massive jump into doing other things. Hence as well, this podcast, you know, um, because... Sharing stories make people feel like they're not on their own. And that's so important. The connection is key. I I can't stress that enough. I I was never going to understand or be, uh, I guess, inspired to get help by anybody around me. They could tell me, you're an idiot. You're uh, an embarrassment. You're out of control. None of that was going to help me as much as sitting in front of some people who had been on a journey and could educate me uh, and inspire me and just show me that this is a way. They weren't forcing it down my throat. They weren't telling me I had to do anything. But to hear stories of people that were like-minded, had a struggle with control uh, of their drinking, uh, and how they had found their way out of that hole was exactly what I needed to hear. And I, I just needed to be informed that 
here's how people that might be like you do this thing if they want to get well. And yeah, some of us, it takes a long time. Some of us go back and we have to restart numerous times. I had to restart once and that's okay. But there's, I've never seen a place that was also more inviting to say, we're going to acknowledge our failures here. We're going to acknowledge our imperfections. And I'd never heard that in my church setting. I always got a little hung up that uh, I was expected to be perfect. I was expected never to fail. And if I did, I sure as hell wasn't going to tell somebody about it. And here was the place that was doing something different. They were saying, tell us about it. Here's the only way we're going to heal is talking about it. And we men have the extra burden that I don't think many of us are naturally inclined to want to talk about our emotions and our feelings. So we've got that. I spend most of my days now uh, talking to other men because we can share our affliction and we can learn. And uh, as much as we may never understand the other gender fully, we can at least understand ourselves a little deeply. It's it's uh, funny you say that because um, I've got a little private Facebook group and there was a guy on there the other day and he said, where are all the men? Because he was the only one apart from me. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it is fascinating that um, it's really difficult to get men to open up. But I think once you tap into it in the right channels, they're more willing, but you know, is it, I think men are more practical, right? Let's fix this solution now. What do I need to do? Like fixing a fence in the garden where, you know, women more openly want to talk about their um, emotions and that. And, and it's an interesting thing, but we're all working on it in this community to get men to talk more. And it's really important. And I think it's changing. You know, there's a lot of big um, groups now, men's groups uh, to do with mental health and, you know, I, I think it is definitely turning this important. And that's, I mean, honestly, for anybody that, that's out there that's a man and saying, wow, yeah, you're right. I, I don't want to talk about my feelings. I, I have a hard time with that. 12-step model is built to to do pragmatic things. It's in order. It's numbered. They give, this isn't a, a religion anyone's trying to sell. It's not a anything but a group of people who wrote down what they did and what happened and it's very pragmatic. It is the opposite, really, of sitting there and just talking about your feelings. It's saying, do this thing, do this exercise, write down the truth, write down your inventory, your resentments, and then you do this, and then you do that. I felt it to, to be so perfectly ordered, like um, a manual to putting together a piece of IKEA furniture. And I, that's what I needed. Sometimes I struggled with so, some of the general principles and some of the biblical stuff, which I now uh, see is very valuable. I, I thought it was just too um, uh, too loose. It wasn't focused enough. I, I need to know what to do. I'm a man. Tell me how to fix this. And uh, I think the, the 12-step model allowed me to get in a place where here's how you fix it. You write this stuff down. You go talk to this person. You go out and make an amend, a, a retribution, a restitution. And uh, it was pretty functional. I found it to be just so pleasing in that matter. And that's why the 12-step model has been co-opted by so many groups, whether yeah. you're a gambler or an overeater, or whether you have codependent relationships. That's why that model works so for so many people, not just addicts, is because it is functional. It's orderly. It makes a little more sense. Yeah, I, I've always said, and I'll stick to this, that there's um, a lot of it that can you can lose use in life, no matter yeah. what's going on. Do you know what I mean? It's a formula yeah. that works, you know. And, you know, for me, uh, I didn't go down that route. I tried AA in the beginning um, for a few weeks and that. And and something just didn't feel right. And I've admitted since 
that maybe I should have tried a different meeting, different group. Um, anyway, I didn't end up too bad. The way I did it was connecting with community um, and embracing it that way, doing more public speaking, saying my yeah. story and that. And, and that's what's worked for me. And, you know, it's like I've, there's <laughs> a bit of an analogy I use about you and me meeting each other, having a coffee and say, right, let's go clothes shopping. And you take me into a shop and I go, do you know what, man? It's, it's not really my thing. So let's go over here and you come in and you go, well, that's not really my thing. That's how it is. Right. And whatever works, works for you. And that's fine. Right. Yeah. I mean, we're just trying to heal. Right. And there's yeah. many paths to healing. Uh, and, and I've seen it. Through my family and through my friends and people that have dipped into uh, the twelve-step model and, and chose a different way. Uh, people use church. People use the Bible. Mm. People, we're just trying to get honest, and that's the one yeah. thing that any of us that suffer struggle with is uh, being gut-level honest and saying, "Here's the ways I suffer, and what am I going to do about it?" And, and usually, uh, if you can get there, who cares how you get there? <laughs> we just want to get there. Yeah, 100%, mate. So now what, you're 19 years sober? Yeah, coming up, uh, uh, I'll be 19. I'm between 18 and 19. I've worked with the same uh, uh, sponsor the entire time. He, he's, he's kept me straight. He's, you know, willing to be honest with me. Again, that's that's the key is that um, we have a lot of friends and family that tiptoe around our issues, not just the drinking, um, you know, our personality, uh, our, our warped sensibilities that were uh, out of line. We we all struggle with relationships, but a sponsor is honest. They have nothing to win or lose. They're carrying a message that says, uh, you know, I, I get to stay clean if I help others. So he helps others. And now I get to do that too. And yeah, 18 years on, I've survived a long period of period of dormancy with the band, a divorce to my first wife. I've been happily remarried for 14 years and we have five total kids between us. We did a reunion tour in 2019, which was hugely successful. I was around people that were partying three or four nights a week. And by then I knew how to protect myself. I knew where to find my peace. Uh, we brought our family mostly with us on the tour we even, you know, I was probably more stressed going back to the UK because that was always a, a great place for me to just feel so worldly in a pub drinking lager and uh, talking to locals about my obsession with football. I, I always felt at home there. And I was, you know, going back there to do some of the theaters we played. I was worried that I would miss that feeling. And mm. what? There's there's people Association, around isn't it? Like. Yeah, yeah, right. The 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 UK always gets the blame as well. You'd be coming up to me in the pub and be going, <laughs> "Oh, where are you from?" Because you're terrible at accents, right? <laughs> <laughs> Were you Australian, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> so, mate, you've written a book as well, haven't you? Do you want to tell me about that? Yeah, after a full decade, uh, you know, on this new journey uh, without alcohol and drugs and and some better thinking, I. I wanted to uh, try and remember and share some of the things that were valuable, really, uh, about the journey. And there's certainly some value in the fun story that was Hootie and the Blowfish. And I had kept a journal. I didn't journal or diary as a kid. Uh, uh, but when we left to go record our first album in Los Angeles, I grabbed a, a little notebook and said, I'm going to write down 
our two months there, write down some things about what we do in case we never get back, in case that's the end. And I'd save that journal. And 20 years later, I started paging through that and found some wonderful memories of some young and innocent guys in my band and me goofing off, dreaming, and uh, also saw some hints of uh, my addiction already. And when I read back and I thought this would be fun to write about, give people the, the, the back story and what it was like being just one of a few guys that were trying to live our dreams musically and how it exploded into something bigger than we thought it would be and how I went down the road, dealt with fame and then no fame and then addiction and family and uh, a great reunion. And so I started writing. It took me about four years sitting at my house. I was diligent. My wife was uh, so helpful, Laura, and helped guiding me through what to say and what not to say. Sometimes the things we leave out are important as well. And uh, so I would not, not try and hurt anybody by my words. And Diversion Books, an omnibus press in the in the UK put out this book called Swimming with the Blowfish. And it's great. I think people are commenting that um, if they've ever had to seek uh, uh, resolve for their pain or uh, illness or, or addiction, it's helpful uh, it's also a musical story, a funny story, because we had so much joy and camaraderie out there. These guys were uh, my buddies, and we still are. Life changes, and we go on, and you're more separate. But um, it's it's a celebration, really, of of a, of a cool time. It's a throwback for the younger generation to a period when there was no internet. There were no mm, cell phones. I know. I know. We thank God for that. And we wish we had documented some things, but uh, other things we're glad we didn't get caught on video, right? Yeah, camera phones. But do you know, I wrote my book and it was really emotional for me because it was almost felt like, I don't know if you can relate to this, that I was on my deathbed looking back at my life, right? And all the things that had happened in my life. And it kind of really dug up a lot from the past, you know, from when I was 14. I even put a letter through my address where I lived when I was 14 and asked whether I could go and have a cup of tea. Typical English thing, can I have a cup <laughs> of tea? And I was going to take around a bit of cake because I wanted to feel what it was like to be in the house that I grew up in. And I, ne- I never actually heard Jim, so, <laughs> so that was devastating. Um, but, yeah, I don't know if you can relate to that writing your book. Was there moments that you sat with it and thought, God, this feels so surreal visiting back was it really vivid for you when you was writing about the past yeah absolutely because i had to trudge through the reality of who i was and yeah recovery is the deep search of your soul and it's a fact finding and a fact facing mission right we got to figure out who we are and what makes us tick so we can get better and, and change from old ideas to new the book was that. I mean, I had some notes. I kept all these calendars, uh, monthly minder, day minders from uh, the late 80s about where we had been as a band and where I'd been in my life, uh, life, weddings, death. I Part of the book is a, you know, the uh, probably the most difficult part to write on was that at the height of my addiction, I was losing my mother. And um, I, I had many regrets on um, the time that I did not put into savoring those last moments when she was diagnosed as terminal. And I was too sick and too wound up in my music. And so I get to use that as a bit of therapy and uh, uh, write about it and remember. And it helped me and my siblings come together and even uh, my dad to say, I, I got to make phone calls. I'm writing this book. Here's what I remember. 
is this right? Is my memory correct? And I had some artifacts uh, about that time. And I was able to go back and write, I think, which was a very touching moment for me uh, and difficult uh, of when we lose people and when we uh, are simultaneously caught up in a disease and uh, how difficult that can be and that there's, you know, a way to come out of it on the other end and find some peace. And I know you've probably found some of those same things where sometimes the best thing to do is to write about it and to share. Well, that's why I um, always say to people, journaling is really powerful, even, you know, like every day, even if it's two lines on a bit of paper to get your feelings out, to start the day afresh, you know. Jim, I'm 100% going to get your book. It sounds absolutely fantastic. And in the UK, we can get it here? Yeah, I'll uh, leave you that link. It's through uh, Omnibus Press, our publishers there, and they're based out of uh, uh, London. And so <laughs> I will get you that information. And yeah. I, there's always, the, yeah, there's a couple links that will be attached there for sure. I think Amazon UK is probably the easiest click, right? It'll be oh, there by, by lunch tomorrow morning. Yeah, it's brilliant, actually. Um, yeah, I will, I will do some stories off the back of this interview, Jim, and get that book out there because I think it's brilliant. And I love your story today. I've thoroughly enjoyed every minute of um, your story. And I'm so grateful that you've taken the time to share it with everyone on here. So thank you very much, mate. Thanks, Dave. See you soon. I really hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For further support, you can buy my book, One for the Road, on Amazon, and you can also follow me on Instagram, at SoberDave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening, and have a great week.